Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. I'm pretty positive I say this a couple times in this episode. I know specifically twice at the end because I just finished editing the whole thing, but I'm going to say it now so that we can just marinate on it. Marinate, is that the right word? That we can like swirl it around and think about it throughout this entire episode. What I have found after, I don't know, almost a year and a half of doing this and six years of being a medical mom is that it really doesn't matter the diagnosis, the situation, the age, it doesn't matter. We all can come together as medical moms and get each other. We can hear another medical mom talk about how certain things made her feel and we go, huh, that's exactly right. Like you just put words to what I was feeling. Today's guest is Marion. She is actually a cancer mom. You know, I've had several people ask me, are you going to invite cancer families on to your podcast to have them share their stories because you're a medical and special needs podcast. And yes, I, I I went back and forth. And of course, of course, because from one medical mom to another, just because we have different diagnosis and a different path and a different story doesn't mean that we all don't feel the same way. Marion brings a very unique perspective to our podcast because her daughter, Sarah, has already beat cancer twice and is doing great. So as a mom who feels like she's knee deep in the trenches, it was so cool to be able to talk to a mom who is on the other side of this journey now. I do need to add a quick apology that we did have a little bit of technical difficulties with the speakers, including but not limited to this intro that was recorded while my husband is redoing the HVAC closet that is attached to my office and there is stuff everywhere and the machine is just roaring at me right now. So let's do this. Well, welcome to When Autumn Comes. Today we have our guest, Marion, and we're just going to dive right in. And can you tell us a little bit about your family? Uh, sure. Um, I'm married uh, to Greg. We've been together 40 years. We celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary this year. Oh, so. I love that. Yeah. So that gives a little indication that I'm a little older in the mom set uh, compared to some of you know, most of your guests. I have two daughters, Kate and Sarah. Uh, Kate's 36. Sarah's now 32. Um, and Sarah was my medical child. Uh, that sort of brought me to come speak with you guys today. Yeah. Uh, we live in Virginia Beach. Uh, we've been here quite a while. Um, so 
that's that's us. Well, welcome. Yeah. Thank you. I, you know, you said it gives us perspective of uh, how your age, but I'm so excited because as a medical mom who is in the trenches, I'm curious to hear how you feel now years removed from the situation because <laughs> I feel like I'm carrying so much weight mentally and physically. <laughs> I'm just carrying so much to try to get through this phase. And I'm excited to kind of talk to you as you are a little bit further in this journey from us. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, depending on how connected you stay to the community, I have chosen to stay very connected to the childhood cancer community, which is mm -hmm. the medical diagnosis that our family experienced. So with that, I, I think I still feel a lot of the same emotion being involved, but hopefully, and I've had feedback from other parents, seeing a parent who's made it through, yes, mm -hmm. you know, isn't, is encouraging. Yes. Yep. You know, someone who can validate what they're experiencing is what I experienced. I actually helped facilitate a caregiver support group at the children's hospital and I really, you know, the social workers facilitate it, but I hang out with them because, you know, a lot of what parents are concerned about or challenged with, you know, it helps to have another parent's perspective who's been there with them. That's exactly why we're doing this. It, it helps so many people, no matter what phase of your journey you're in. I'm sure you also feel good being able to give back to the community and be supportive for other families. It, it's a full circle thing. Yeah, it is. It is. And you know, one thing Sarah always said when she was diagnosed with cancer was, I want to find the good in this and, mm -hmm. and carry it forward. I don't want this to be the big bad thing that happened to me without some good result from it. So she really has motivated us to stay very engaged. What kind of cancer did she have and what what did all of it look like for you? Yeah, Sarah was actually 14 when she was first diagnosed with cancer. She um, had been sick for about six months. Uh, lots of physicians, lots of tests, no answers. Um, I don't think that's unique to just cancer, though. I think, you know, I always say to, to parents who are frustrated by that, you know, pediatricians don't want to go to the worst case scenario right off the bat. You know, they're looking for the simple answers and then ultimately end up in the complex answer. So she had a leukemia that was uh, classified as biphenotypic which means uh, in childhood cancers, there are two types of leukemia, um, acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And what she had was actually a little bit of both, uh, which made her, you know, considered a rare <laughs> cancer in the rare. We community. do rare. We absolutely do rare around <laughs> here. So welcome. Yeah. She, she always says I was special right from the beginning. Um, only about Two to three percent of childhood leukemia patients are either what's called biphenotypic or now called mixed lineage. Okay. So she was diagnosed. You know, finally what happened, we went to a doctor's appointment. Her CBC came back with blasts in her blood. And it was like, oh, this kid's got leukemia. That's what's oh my wrong. Gosh. And you say it like, obviously <laughs> um, now, like it's rolling off your tongue. But I'm sure in the moment it was just devastating. I can only imagine. You know, it's really interesting. I work in the healthcare field. I'm an administrator, a finance administrator for one of our large, the large hospital system in our area. So I, you know, I have medical terminology. I know how to read a medical record. I, you know, I'm over the people who do coding and billing. 
So, you know, I kind of knew something was up that day just by the movement between physicians, which, you know, I could see what the technicians were doing while they were doing her MRI. And I had, you know, really in the back of my mind thought, this is really serious, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But it's still when the words are said to you, you kind of go into this shock mode and you try to think of any way to make it not be so. Yeah. Um, the good news is I was a really great historian because that's sort of what I do. I keep medical records. So, you know, I was able to give them, a, you know, once we got to the oncology clinic, give them a good background that sort of brought us to where we were. And yeah, it is devastating. I mean, the first 24, 48 hours, you really don't know what to do with it because it it's just so unimaginable. And scary. And with yeah. a 14-year-old, how did she take it? You know, she, Sarah's very... Um, not dramatic. Let me put it that way. So she listened, she's heard it. I mean, at the point I was calling family that day, I mean, I'm sobbing on the phone and she's like, mom, would you like me to talk to them? Because I, <laughs> oh. I, I can see this is upsetting. you. Oh, wow. And then there's my older daughter who is, is sort of the, she should have been a comedian. I mean, she's an analyst for a college, but <laughs> You know, she always kind of keeps the mood a little bit on the light side. And, you know, one of the funny stories we tell was when they met with us about her bone marrow results the next day, you know, they wanted to talk to Greg and I first and then talk to Sarah. And Katie, as as they brought Sarah and Katie in the room, I was very, like, splotchy red. And Katie just looked at it and said, well, based on mom's chest, it's not good news. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and yes, I remember Sarah calmly calling her friends and saying, hey, I know we were supposed to go out this Friday, found out I have leukemia, can't do it. Um, <laughs> no very, big deal. She's very pragmatic. And somebody asked me once, do you think she just didn't understand? And I was like, oh, no, she understood. That's just really how she kind of approached it. Yeah. How long was the treatment for the first um, yeah. What's the she word? Was treated. Of cancer? With the first... <laughs> first? I don't know what you're calling it. That's a good question. Um, she was treated on what was called the AML protocol with ALL maintenance. So she uh, had very intensive chemotherapy spent um, from July to December, 105 days. And then she continued uh, outpatient therapy for a total of 20 months. Okay. So, so in leukemia, they measure your success kind of at your remission date. So your remission date happens early in treatment, hopefully, and then they just got to keep you in remission. So she went to remission in September of 2003. Uh, she completed her therapy in uh, March of 2005. Um, and then after that, she was just followed up annually and really did very well. Very few side effects she had side effects, but for all intents and purposes, you could look at her and she looked like a normal kid. Mm -hmm. Wow. Did you ever fear relapse? Was it something that was on your radar at all? Or was it just like, we've got this, we beat this, let's go? You know, it's interesting. The the measure that, that most physicians give you is like a five-year mark. So they say, you know, you don't relapse in five years. We consider you cured. So, so five years came and went. and But before that, there was always some anxiety around, was she going to relapse? 
we tried not to make it be like super present in our life. But, you know, as kids would relapse around us from other families mm-hmm. that we knew, it, you know, it brings it all back up to you. So at the point she was diagnosed as relapsed, she was six and a half years out from remission. Uh, she was going to the late effects clinic, which is one of the things that Children's Hospital offers, where they just really monitor you on an annual basis to make sure all the side effects from all the drugs they gave you aren't creating other health issues for you. So we kind of viewed that as a victory lap appointment. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to go. Everyone's going to be super excited. Sarah's doing great. Hey, Sarah. And her blood work came back that she had relapsed. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, I'll be honest, at that point, it was like off my radar. I did not, I mean, we were both dumbfounded. Did you just feel like you got hit by a truck? I did what my oldest daughter calls stoic Irish woman, where I stood just dead faced looking at the physician going, there's been an error, go figure it out. And, you know, we've known her physician, you know, that whole time we'd stayed in touch with him. He's like... Mary and I went and looked at the slides myself. Mm-hmm. This is Sarah. Was Sarah feeling bad or it was just caught because of the blood work? You know, it's interesting. In retrospect, there were signs and symptoms that she just didn't attribute to it. She'd had some bone pain. She thought she'd overdone it doing something. Um, but no, there weren't like overt signs. Mm-hmm. And it really came as a surprise to everybody. The other thing that was really interesting was her reaction. The first thing she did was apologize. Um, She said, I'm sorry to her doctor. And, you know, she had kind of become this beacon of survivorship. And she really did have a hard time and felt like she had let everybody down. You know, so we, you know, we all convinced her, no, it was your body that let you down. But that day, thankfully, her physician knew us well enough. He said, you guys need to go home. It was just me and Sarah. Greg wasn't with us. Kate lives in Chicago. He said, go home, you know, sort of get your things together. You need to be back here tomorrow and plan. You're going to be staying for a while. Oh. So, so that was really a wonderful gift to just give us that time to be together as a family to sort of go through all that discussion that happens when you get bad news. Um, at that point, Sarah had a very serious boyfriend who was, she was 20 at this point, right? Right. She was 20. Okay. Uh, Patrick had just left to go back to JMU. The other funny story we tell about that day and we're, you know, we're kind of goofy people. (laughs) You have to be to get through this nonsense. Right. So the first thing is we're driving home and Sarah's like, mom, I need to go to the bathroom. And I was like, well, we better stop because if we get to the house and dad's there, we're going to have to have this conversation right away. So we stopped at the wall and went to the back. (laughs) And then when we got home, Greg wasn't home. But when he came in, I said, honey, we need to talk. And he looked at me and he goes, the dog died. He thought that's what it was. We had an elderly beagle who was kind of on her last legs. And I said, oh, how I wish it was the dog. Like, well, Um, not so much. Not so much. (laughs) So we did have that opportunity. Patrick was able to come back. He just left uh, from a visit. And uh, we just sort of all rallied together and went, jumped right back into it. Was the transition back? I mean, you had several years off from your, you were semi-retired as a medical mom. 
Mm-hmm. Was the transition back into this world any easier or more difficult than it was initially? Um, it, it is interesting. You know, one of the things we say about a cancer diagnosis is the train leaves the station really fast. There's no time to sort of marinate with the news. I've and, heard that a lot because yeah, that's not like, the same for our community. Ours is really mm-hmm. slow to like gather the information mm-hmm. and figure a lot of things out. But some of the cancer people I've spoken with have said, like, you go. Like, there is no there is no time to process sometimes. Right. Usually by the time they find this out, the kids are sick. I mean, they're, you know, their their lives are now in danger. So so there's no, you know, the train leaves the station. I think when you compare the two, when she was first diagnosed, we didn't know anything. We had known one child who'd had cancer. We had no clue, you know, what we were getting into. Um, and we sort of faced it with optimism and jumped right in. And you know, fortunately, I'd had a lot of experience working in hospitals, so I was comfortable in a hospital building. It wasn't a problem. But the second time, we knew everything that we were getting ready to face. And it was very frightening because there was no glossing over what the road was going to be. Uh, the other thing we really struggled with that day was, could we think of one child who had relapsed who lived? Oh, and my gosh. You know, so that was like very humbling and, you know, the other thing I knew is that her treatment protocols would be very different on the second time, that it would probably involve a stem cell transplant and it would probably involve us leaving Norfolk. And so all of that was, you know, loomed very quickly sort of in the forefront of what was going to go on. You seem like a very... And correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem like a, this is our task. We have to do it. Let's just go. Mm-hmm. Take us into, you said there's not a lot of time to process what's going on. So you kind of explained mm-hmm. what it was like the you know night that you guys all were there before you went to the hospital. When do your breakdowns happen in the hospital? When did it hit you? How did you process like, how the hell did we get here? What is happening? Like, when does that, when does that happen for you or even your daughter? I would say it varies from parent to parent, but for us, I am great in a crisis. And it really wasn't until she finished treatment the first time did I realize what we'd been through and what it meant. Because I was so hyper-focused on what she needed during her treatment time. Mm -hmm. Second time, same thing. You know, when she was finally well enough, she returned to school I remember like standing, pumping gas one day and just breaking down. And, you know, it was just all of a sudden I had time to think about it. Yeah. And I hadn't had time until then. That's, I feel that because for me, Lorelai was in and out of the ICU so much. And when I'm, when I'm in the ICU, I was, they actually at one point thought I was a resident. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) no, I'm just like so much in work mode though, to keep going my husband was opposite from me. And so when we were inpatient, he was a mess and I was working. But then when mm-hmm. we get home, he was like, okay, we're home. Things are okay. And that's when I would just kind of melt and mm-hmm. be like, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah. And you have time to think and there's stuff everywhere. And it's just, it's a lot in your head. Yeah. I feel like we're opposite, but I, we don't, in our family have a lot of like, dire traumatic situations. So I often wonder like, how would I, you know, but I feel like I'm kind of like Mike where I panic and I'm just like, what, how did we get here? What is happening? How do I do this? (laughs) 
And my husband's just like, we're just doing it. Like we have no choice. (laughs) And then when we get home, I'm like, we're home. Thank God. This is so much better. Well, and Marion, how long was the, because I know you said the first treatment was quite a bit of time. Mm -hmm. How long were you inpatient for the second treatment? Uh, The second treatment, she went to the hospital in June. We went to Durham in September, at the beginning of September. We were in Durham until the end of December. Wow. And then she came home. Mm -hmm. But then the year afterward, she had 12 hospitalizations. And one of them was back at Durham for three, three weeks. Mm-hmm. So um, she had a lot of complications of her stem cell transplant. So, it, okay. you know, in fact, of when you look at the, the medical mom part of me, that was the hard period of time was her post-transplant complications uh, and the complexity of, of dealing with a child who was really super fragile at that point. I mean, she, mm-hmm. I mean, she was fragile when she had cancer, but we managed that. <laughs> it was much harder after her transplant. Well, and so. you said child, but she's twenty twenty one at this point. And right. is she still being treated at pediatric hospitals and pediatric doctors? Yeah, it's interesting. With child cancer, they will treat child until they're twenty six. Okay. So she ended up staying on both the pediatric service at the children's hospital here and the pediatric bone marrow transplant service at Duke, which okay. thank goodness, because she has no use for adult medicine. She really got spoiled by pediatric medicine, you know, and, and her age at that point did present some interesting challenges. You know, she, by the time she had a birthday right after she was diagnosed, she was 21, mm-hmm. you know, so either way she was an adult, you know, she had to do her own consenting. She had to, you know, they had to have her way in. we had always had her way in on stuff, but they were no longer looking at mom for the answer. Now they were looking at her for the answer. And she, she found that to be a lot of pressure. Um, and even when we went through her consenting process for her transplant, it was a very long and arduous process. It's multiple meetings and 28 pages of consent documents. You know, she, she just looked at her doctor and said, my mom will read it and explain it to me and then I will sign it. Mm-hmm. She said, I will not read it myself. And he was like, well, you know, your life, I don't know. Yeah. But um, that's kind of how, how she was. I think the other thing, too, was, you know, she had Patrick in her life now. And Patrick and she had to make decisions about her fertility. They had to make decisions, you know. So we tried very hard to make sure he was part of all of those discussions. And um, thankfully, he was willing to do that and was very committed during the whole time. Mm-hmm. Sitting here kind of like a little speechless. Usually I'm not that speechless. But just trying to process or imagine what it's like as just a typical mom, right? Like letting your kid go and having a balance of like, oh, they may be going off to college or like gaining that freedom. Mm -hmm. But then you get hit by this truck of my kid has cancer. Now you're talking about her, you know, having a relapse and them, you not being able to kind of help control the situation, them strictly looking at her, but yet Mm -hmm. you're still mom, right? And so you're managing your own fears and emotions, but you're also looking at your daughter, and I'm sure there were times where she was just petrified. How did you manage to take on both of that, her emotional stress and fears and your own at the same time? Like that just seems nearly impossible. I don't know how I did it, to be honest. I I think the other thing that was very different about Sarah the second time was the first time she was the, yes, let's do it. We're going to beat this. I'm the best, you know, kind of very positive attitude, very focused. 
Well, the second time, you know, she knew, she knew and understood much better what was going on. I think in some ways, the nurses who were taking care of her were the same ones who took care of her at 14. And they didn't understand why she wasn't that same 14 year old anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and I actually had to sit down with, with, you know, the nurses one night on the unit and say, Hey, you guys got to understand she's got way more to lose now than she did then. Yeah. Yeah. And she knows, she knows what's coming at her. She's seen others go through it. You know, you you have to give her a break that she's not going to be the same. She's not a little teenager anymore. So, and they understood that, but it was like, I think it was really surprising to them. And then, you know, we're, I'm lucky. I have a good relationship with her. I knew when I had to sort of step in and, and thankfully her doctors understood that relationship and, you know, the new transplant doc at, at Duke had to learn more about that. You know, her old oncologist had known us now at, at that point for seven years. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but it, it's a lot to juggle. It is. <laughs> I can't imagine. And on top of juggling all of that, you're also juggling care between two facilities. Mm-hmm. Were they talking or were you kind of the middle woman controlling? Luckily, you have a little bit of experience in... <laughs> All of this, but it just, it's so much. Can we talk about the two facilities quick, just to clarify? So she, when you say care at two facilities, it was her first diagnosis where she was treated or the first time she got diagnosed where she was treated versus the second time. Is that, am I understanding that right? No, no, that at both the first and second time she was treated for her cancer initially at at the children's hospital here in Norfolk, but, but they don't do stem cell transplants. So they had to send her to Duke to have the stem cell right. transplant. Okay. So, so, so yes, I will say they have an excellent relationship and our, her oncologist and her transplant doctor probably speak to each other on a daily basis. Now they're very different <laughs> physicians mm-hmm. and even her oncologist here told her, you know, I'm a little more paternalistic. He's a scientist. He's not going to get some of what you say to him. He's not going to like your pierced nose. <laughs> He's going to give you grief about your tattoos, <laughs> you know. So, so one of my favorite stories was the day she met Dr. Martin at Duke, the transplant. He goes through this like four hour long description of what the seven hurdles of transplant. And it's literally the seven stages of the transplant and everything that can go wrong in each stage. At the end of the, I don't think she'll mind me sharing this, but at the end of <laughs> of the discussion, she looked at him and she said, you know, you, you and I don't know each other very well. I'm looking forward to getting to know you better. She said, but one thing you don't know about me is I'm an Amazon and I've been through three rounds of chemotherapy and I look this good. (laughs) So his response was, You've never been through anything like this. Oh, he was not. He was there for business, wasn't he? Right. He was all Mr. Business. It is interesting, though, a year and a half later, maybe it was two years later, when she finally went back to Duke for a follow-up after the horrible year of complications. He's wrapping up and he said, he goes, you know, Sarah, the day I met you, you said something to me I didn't understand. He said, you told me you were an Amazon he goes, I understand it now. He goes, most of the children I treat would not have survived. Oh, what a gift. You know, so she says that she really educated him during those two years. 
Mm-hmm. And he's gotten to be a much bigger softy than, <laughs> than he was at the time she met him. Um, but you couldn't ask for a stronger technical, uh, you know, knowledgeable physician in, in his specialty. So, you know, it's an, an interesting switch off. And I, I firmly believe we, we have one doctor in particular. I will leave his name out, but he is a neurosurgeon at our local hospital that is not necessarily everybody's favorite, but once you get to know him, I feel like our kids are as much to teach them as they are to teach us. And Mm -hmm. Lorelai has given all of her physicians a run for their money. My little nonverbal five-year-old taught them so much about life. And it sounds like in your case, y'all did the same. It's just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. We are going to take a quick pause. Have you guys joined the When Autumn Comes Society yet? No, really. Like, don't fast forward and ask yourself, did I click that button? Did I join that group on Facebook? It is a group for anybody and everybody. Moms, dads, caregivers, nurses, doctors, I don't know, grocery store clerks. Why do I always go to grocery store clerks? Like astronauts. Astronauts can join. We could have rock collectors. We could have construction men. We could have... Um, geneticists. We could have anybody. Anybody can join our group. We're Anybody can sit with us. We're just that cool. So we are a group for people who love medical and special needs moms, pretty much. It That makes it sound like it's a dating app. It's not a dating app, guys. It's a community where we basically share our stories. We talk about the things we've purchased on Amazon. We ask questions about like, oh my gosh, have you seen this? Or, hey, how does this make you feel? It's a really cool group where you can join and be kind and support each other. I highly recommend it. Facebook.com slash When Autumn Comes Society. We'll see you there. Now back to the show. Yeah, so really where the care coordination came in was in that year post-transplant where it got very complicated Mm -hmm. because we were driving back and forth to Duke on a weekly basis because she was so sick. In retrospect, I now understand she probably should have been put back to Duke totally as an inpatient. But her oncologist here knew she didn't want that. So he worked very hard to try to keep her at home and let both Duke and the Children's Hospital treat her. I mean, I think it didn't affect her treatment. But And for the people who don't know the geography locally, what's the distance between how many hours drive was it for you? About a four hour drive. But I did find in that year, if it wasn't her two primary physicians taking care of her, because, you know, they rotate, they're on, you know, mm-hmm. I had to do a whole lot more interference and bring people up to speed and remind them that, no, you stop that drug. It's this drug now. And um, so, so yeah, I had to really be on my game to pay attention. And, you know, she had a very, you know, I said that that period of time was probably the most complex. I remember she had five-page list of medication at home, and it was IV meds, it was pain pumps, it was, um, and I'm not a nurse. Did you take time off of work at this point, or were you? I was very lucky that my employer allowed me to take, you know, FMLA. Um, I had colleagues that donated vacation time to cover my time away. Um, I did try to work, you know, some of that year that was was bad, but it was really hard. Um, Yeah. It's so interesting to me because I was like born in, no, I wasn't born into this. I had a, a solid 30 years before I became a mom, never mind a medical mom. The second my child was born, I was a medical mom. 
Mm-hmm. And that's just the life we have had. So on the flip side of this, like I will never know what non-medical motherhood is like. Right. What is it like now? Not to be a spoiler alert here, but we haven't really talked. So Sarah is good now. Sarah is married and healthy. And mm-hmm. you spent years and years of the last decade juggling hospitals and I'm sure color-coded binders because you're a lot like <laughs> me <laughs> and lists and spreadsheets and things like mm-hmm. that. What what is what is it like now on the flip side? Yeah, I, I will say one thing that I really struggled with after her treatment was in a lot of ways I felt like that was what God put me on the earth to do, to take care of her during that time. And I I went through a period of sort of a loss of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, gosh, this, you know, I, I was good at it. I, I think I made a difference. And that's what I was here for. But now what am I going to do? I mean, I, I, you know, I work and I have a lot of other things I'm invested in, but I really struggled with, with that. You know, I think you're always going to be somewhat of a medical mom. So I, I, when she gets sick, I get very nervous. <laughs> I, you know, if she complains about something, I'm like, have you been to the doctor? But, you know, now she's an adult and she has a husband and I know I have to kind of not be but so pushy about it. But she takes really good care of herself. She does everything her doctors tell her to do. And she's she's well and she's you know healthy. But you know the truth is she's always going to have things that are a result of her. So, you know, she's on on thyroid medicine and hormones because her thyroid and her ovaries got destroyed during her radiation. Mm -hmm. Um, Her risk for secondary cancer is, I forget how many times greater than an average person's risk of cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she jokes about she has to get a mammogram every year. And the first thing they ask her is, you're only 32. Why are you here? Your insurance isn't going to pay for it. She's like, yeah, they are going to pay for it because I had cancer. Oh my gosh, that drives um, me nuts for her. You know, and yeah, it's and she's a very good advocate for herself. And the other thing that's been a real big issue for her in the last six months is survivor guilt. She lost two very close friends uh, to secondary cancers and complications of, of their stem cell transplant. And yeah, it's just something that's sort of very heavy on her right now. Uh, that that why why did I make it through and and they didn't? Do you have that too? Like why did my family like as a mom? Do you feel <laughs> like the secondary survivor's guilt when you see the other? Because I know the cancer community is very close, <laughs> when, especially inpatient. Yeah. When you look at other families, do you feel that way? Uh, you know, I don't, but it's because I've replaced it with volunteer service. If you looked at what's my motivation for doing it, part of it is as long as I know that I'm continuing to help them, I'm doing the right things with what I experienced. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I do good come out of yeah. this bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that helps me a lot. I mean, there, you know, obviously when, when Sam, it, yeah. Kristen's sister died, and yeah. then, you know, Malia. It, you're like, why did that family get such a crappy experience? Yeah. And we didn't. Mm-hmm. Because we almost had walked the exact same path, mm-hmm. you know? It's, you just one day at a time is all we can do, right? Yeah, right. Did you or your daughter ever go through the opposite of, like, why did this happen to us? 
You know, I don't think we have. No, I, I think at some point that's going to come up. <laughs> you know, um, part of it is, you know, I'm I'm a Christian. I don't believe God makes children sick, but I do believe he helps us to see what to do with a bad situation. I think yeah, human bodies are frail and they fail and go wrong. You know, maybe that's what I tell myself to not dwell on why did it happen, but it's what I do do. Yeah. So we wrap up all of our episodes, and I think this is a perfect place to ask the question. We wrap up all of our episodes with the question, what gives you hope? So Marion, after everything you've been through and advocating like a rock star for your daughter multiple times, what gives you hope? Um, What gives me hope is knowing that science is continuing to move forward to try to solve these problems. You know, when I look at, at how child cancer is treated today compared to how it was treated in 2003, it's like a whole different thing. But I also know there's so much more that needs to be done. So what gives me hope is that I'm going to make a difference and, and work that I do is going to help another family. Um, and then just looking at Sarah, you know, mm-hmm. Just seeing her thrive as a young adult with a good job and making a difference and, and that I can call her today and say, I can't get my AirPods to connect to the <laughs> What do I do? And she's like, Mom, you have a regular set of earpods. <laughs> she goes, like, those purple ones I used to joke you about, where are they? I was like, oh, yes, I know where they are. <laughs> She's going to listen to this and your audio has been in and out a little bit the whole time. She's like, mom, your audio. <laughs> oh no. Um, so yeah, that's what gives me. Hope. I love that. It's beautiful. So. I love how with this community, we are all, we all three of us have very different stories and we're mm-hmm. all in very different phases of the journey. I mean, and I'm in very different phases with both of my children Mm-hmm. And how we can all come together and understand what we're all going through, whether, you know, different diagnosis, different chapter, Lorelai's past and Benji's not. And, you know, you can look at Kristen's family and say, like, how did we get here? But we all still understand each other. Right. And I think that that's, that's what keeps a lot of us moms going is mm-hmm. the fact that we aren't alone in this. So thank you so much for sharing today. Well, well, thank you for the opportunity. I I do think shared experiences, even though they can be different, have a lot of commonalities. And, Mm -hmm. and I know it always helped me to know I wasn't alone. You know, even, even if I didn't reach out to somebody every day, knowing that I could reach out to them made a big difference on those really tough things. Mm. Uh, so I, I just love, and I said this at the end, but I don't think I'm going to include that in the recording. So I absolutely love how we can all come from very different backgrounds and very different diagnoses and very different hospital stays. And I mean, I feel like even in our case, you and I, I'm much more of a medical mom than a disabled mom than you are. I mean, not apples and oranges here, but you know, like we are all in different phases, different chapters, but we can all come together and be like, yeah, I am a medical mom and I've got your back. 
there's just something beautiful about this community. Absolutely. Yep. I feel like that interview, I was just soaking it in. It was such a different interview and perspective than we, I think we've had in a very long time, maybe if ever. I mean, we all go through very different things, but that was just, I thought very unique. So, um, but yes, I totally agree that we're all here. And I, all I can picture is like all of us in a circle holding hands, just lifting each other up, no matter what journey that we've been on, Mm -hmm. um, supporting each other. So it was really, that was really incredible. And I kind of want to be friends with her daughters now. So if you're listening, they sound yeah. as snarky <laughs> as me. And I heard some JMU mentioned. So if you guys want to be friends, hit me up. What were uh, what was that? Bulldogs? The Duke JMU dogs. Bulldogs? Duke oh, Duke Dogs. I was J- waiting for you to do Duke. that. Dukes. Okay, on that note, <laughs> I'm going to go put on some college purple and gold. Ooh, that's good. Uh, what am I going to do? Blow your nose. I'll probably blow my nose. I have another cold. (laughs) (laughs) 